All right, so we're going to give you the overarching storyline of the scriptures over the next four weeks. That's one of the main goals, um, but we're not doing that just as a means to an end. And so the first question we would like to answer rhetorically um, would be, why does understanding the storyline of the Bible actually matter? And so there's two main um, comments we would, we would put there in front of you. One would be for your interpreting of the scriptures themselves, and then secondly, for Christian living and our place in the world. So I'm not going to read all this to you. However, I do want to touch on each point specifically. For our interpreting of the Bible, the storyline matters because when you understand the, the broader storyline of the scriptures, it helps you understand where you're at when you're reading. So what does your context look like? So a good question that we've thrown out there for you to maybe ask yourself, where am I at in the storyline of scripture? You know, And there's a lot of, there's a myriad of details that would be included in that. Um, you know, where are we at in regards to pre-Christ or post-Christ coming? Um, where, you know, where are we at in regards to the sacrificial system? Where are we at in regards to the covenants? All these questions are going to be questions that as you continue to study the scriptures and become uh, more and more knowledgeable in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that knowing where you're at in the overarching storyline is important for you interpreting. Um, and the better you know the story, the better you can do that. Secondly, um, it really helps demonstrate what we would call the progressive nature of God's revelation in the Bible. So it's really interesting, like, you know, God reveals himself as you walk through Scripture a little more and a little more and a little more. And then Paul eventually says the mystery of God has been revealed, right? And so we kind of see that. But the more you understand the overarching storyline of Scripture, the more you can see God's plan and Christ all the way back in the Old Testament. And so we're going we're gonna to talk through some of that. Um, that plays right into the next point. It reveals the central figure in that climactic center of the Bible. Sunday school answer, what's the climax of the scriptures? Jesus Christ, right? We understand that. There's always pointing towards and then pointing towards again to the second coming for Christ. He himself, as um, John MacArthur would point out very clearly in First Peter, he himself, he's not sending someone else to redeem and come and get his people. He's sending Jesus himself. So, um, we, we, a good question we throw out there for you is how does this point um, how does this point to or stand in relation to the person or work of Jesus Christ so you're always asking yourself that and the more you understand the overarching scripture line the more you begin to see oh that makes sense Like I, I, I see that theme in Isaiah and then I see that theme in Matthew and then I see that theme in Revelation it all ties together and so it's going to give you a, a, fun, a, fun, a fundamental uh, ability to interpret scripture regardless of where you're at um, at least uh, putting tools in your toolbox so you can pull the tools out and you don't have to just rely on a commentary or just rely on someone else's teaching that you can kind of think through that. And then thirdly, it helps you identify both the unity of the Bible and its rich diversity. Um, I love that statement. I'm not going to comment much on it because I think it, it speaks for itself. Um, here's a question we throw out. How does this contribute to the overall storyline of the scripture? What is unique about this passage in comparison to others throughout the storyline of scripture? And so um, we'll talk a little bit about the uniqueness today of God from his humanity, but also, um, you know, the, the sameness, if you will, the imageness, as we'll, as we'll kind of talk through. So it helps us interpret the Bible. Secondly, uh, it helps our Christian living in our place in the world. Romans 12, 1, we all know it. If not, that's okay. Um, we are to live lives of sacrificial worship to God. And we will either be shaped by one of two things. Uh, we said this last time, and this really stuck with a lot of people that were in our last class. You're either going to be shaped by the world, or you're going to be shaped by the Word. And I think a really good question to ask yourself at any given day, any given moment, any given endeavor, any way you spend your money, any relationship you pursue, 
is this helping me be shaped more by the word or is this causing me to be shaped more by the world? And sometimes that's a momentary um, uh, conversation with yourself. I mean, sometimes I tell Amy it's like a momentary repentance. Like I'm like, Lord, I know I'm being sinful right now and I repent and then like two seconds later I'm doing it again. You know, so... Um, we, we, we don't want to be transformed, uh, conformed to the world. We want to be transformed by the Word of God, right? And so understanding the overarching story will help us with our Christian living. And then when we see the whole story, that helps that story shape us. So um, one thing Leslie Newbigin writes, and I think the quote's great, the way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part of? So what story do you identify yourself with? Because our whole lives will be shaped by that story. And I realize there's going to be more stories in your, like, your childhood and your upbringing and what you're experiencing now and what's going on in the culture and what's happening in Ukraine. Like All that is a part of your story. But if the central piece of your story is not the overarching story of the scriptures, then you are perhaps imperceptibly being shaped by a story that is not good. Does that make sense? So understanding the overarching redemptive story of the storyline of Scripture is really helpful. So we're going to jump into the Scriptures. Any thoughts, any questions on that? What do you think? I know I'm talking really fast, but I want to get to the meat. Is that helpful to kind of set some foundation? Cool. Awesome. All right, so Act 1, Creation. God establishes his kingdom, um, and that's kind of how he starts laying it out. Um, we're, we're starting here, and um, we're going to deal with Genesis uh, and the creation story. Um, we may deal with a little more, but certainly not less. Um, but most of you are probably not going to be surprised that the majority of our time is spent in the first couple chapters of Genesis, right? Creation is described there. Um, once you get to chapter 3, you begin to see the disobedience and the fall. Um, so Genesis, one thing that the author points out that I thought was rather interesting, he makes a pretty um, unique point. Genesis is the first of the five books of the Torah, or the book of Moses. Interestingly enough, you don't meet Moses until what book? Exodus. Exodus. So you see the birth and the rise of leadership of Moses in Exodus, and then he is literally mentioned in almost every chapter from then until the end of Deuteronomy, but he's never mentioned in Genesis. So the author's kind of point is, um, why, why is Genesis a part of the Torah? Why is Genesis a part of the book of the law? In fact, um, in you know, ancient Jewish culture, uh, most children by age 12 would have been required to memorize the first five books of the scriptures. And so when you get to like Deuteronomy and it says put it on your doorpost as you go and you come, those types of things. So why is it included? Um, and really, I think the, the larger point of the, the author is we will see that Genesis is necessary to include in order to, a fully, in order to fully establish God's kingdom. Like he's establishing his kingdom. He's establishing what we know of who God is what he's done, what he's going to do, and how he interacts with humanity. And that is all extremely important before we get to Moses and rising up Moses and rescuing his people from Egypt and then moving them into Canaan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if we don't understand all of that, then the book of Moses is really missing a huge part of it. So um, he starts with this idea of who is the Lord. Now, let me preface. Anything today that I say that is like, halfway noteworthy 
uh, go ahead and give it to the author. <laughs> so my, my intention today is to try to summarizingly um, express what he's, they have already said. Um, there may be a little bit of uh, criticism in there, um, but no, no credit to me. Uh, what I've tried to do is really streamline and, and summarize what, what he said. So I'll call out a couple quotes, but um, throughout my teaching, I will communicate um, things, concepts that have come from them uh, as if I'm speaking in language that came from me, but trust me, it did not, okay? So uh, we'll set that preface there. Um, so he starts with this idea of who is the Lord? Um, and I've given you a couple names on the sheet, uh, but no names are more important than those identifying God in Genesis and the other Old Testament books. And so he, he draws upon this conclusion that names are, I mean, they can be pretty important in our culture. I think in some cultures more than others. Um, but he lays out this idea that in the Old Testament world, names almost always are very, very significant. So uh, the first name there, Genesis 1, Elohim is how you would pronounce it, uh, is given. It's a general name given for God. So I've given you some room to take notes. I know there's a lot of them. Trust me, I had like three pages and I got all the way down to one. So you should be proud of me. Um, but Elohim is the general name given for God, and it's, it's used throughout the ancient Near East. Then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and you see uh, what we would translate as Lord God. And this is important because I'm going to tie it in just a minute. Uh, that would be Yahweh Elohim. Um, and this is a unique way. This is, a, is, this is a way, by the time you get to chapter 2, it's a way that God has not been referenced to as uh, at this point. Um, and it seems to be meant to communicate something special and something unique. Then you get up to Exodus 3, Exodus 6, 1 through 12, um, and then even into uh, parts of Genesis, and you see Yahweh by itself emerge. Um, more specifically, Exodus 3, Exodus 6, when you see Yahweh you begin to see this God who is rescuing Israel from slavery. This redemptive God. This God that is moving his people out of harm's way, that is sustaining his people. Why is that important? The title chosen for God is what he chooses to identify himself as a God of redemption, as the Redeemer God, as the, the God who rescues his people. So, here's the connection. When Yahweh and Elohim are joined in, in Genesis. And then Israel sees Yahweh then used in Exodus. They immediately know this is the same God. The same God that is parting the Red Sea. The same God that is feeding us in the wilderness. The same God that is, you know, taking down Pharaoh and removing us from his grasp and redeeming us. That's the same God that was referenced in Genesis as Yahweh, as Lord God, as Elohim. And this is really, really important because although they, they we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute but there was a lot of different views of who God was in, in the ancient Near East like a, a lot of different views and in fact we'll talk about this idea of how the authors believe that Genesis was written and, and used certain metaphors and imageries purposefully to contradict what some of the false views of what God uh, were, were expected or worshipped as back then so um, as, as we see the Israelites meet God as Redeemer, uh, first through Moses, it's only after they meet God as Redeemer that they learn that he's the God of all creation, that he's the Lord of creation. And honestly, that's not very dissimilar from us, right? Like we, we experience Christ. When we come to know Christ and he draws us to himself and saves us, 
we meet him as a savior God. But we don't quite have all the pieces together of him being Lord of creation. It's, 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 it's like the Lord is gracious and kind of moves through his church and moves through his teaching and moves through his people and shows us, okay, I am the redeemer God, but guess what? I'm the Lord of all creation. I am the Lord of all things. And so we kind of see this moving through. Thus, in order to be true, true, truly telling the Christian story or the overall redemptive story, we are inevitably driven back to in the beginning God. If, if the Israelites had not seen God in chapter 1 as Yahweh or the Lord God, they wouldn't have made that connection, right? So we're drawing this, this reason of why we want to see the overall story. He moves into this title called A Faith for Israel. Um, I'm not going to comment on... Some of his titles aren't necessarily what I would have chosen, but that's probably because I don't write books. So um, I'm sure he has like a super intelligent reason for that. I used his titles just because if you were to pick the book up yourself, you could follow right along. Um, but we're, we're going to walk through it anyway. So here's, here's his point. The first scene of any story is pretty important. I, I think we would probably all agree. In fact, I used to have a guy tell me when I was in college, uh, actually my master's, if you read the first paragraph, the last paragraph of the book, and like the middle chapter, you could pretty much write the summary of most books. I don't know if that really stands true. Uh, I never don't know that I can ever really remember doing that. But nonetheless, the first scene of any story, of any plot, of any narrative, of any movie is probably fairly important in most cases. If it's not, it's probably not a great story. Um, and so this is absolutely of no exception in the scriptures. And so we must first remember that Genesis, first and foremost, is telling the story of creation to the Israelites long ago in a culture that we just don't live in. We don't understand that culture. We don't live there. Um, but we need to be reminded, simply put, that what, what the author is using to communicate is going to be absolutely understood by the author's audience, right? And we'll give you some examples of that in just a second. So the writer uses imagery and concepts that would be a little unfamiliar to us, but familiar maybe to the audience. Um, but then once you read the first few chapters of Genesis and you kind of lay it up against the backdrop of ancient Near East or the ancient world, you begin to see a pretty powerful message. So Genesis 1 and 2, um, they're actually very, what would be called polemical uh, or argumentative. They're, they're arguing for something. So as I mentioned earlier, creation stories weren't a new thing prior to Yahweh coming on the scene. In fact, um, they were pretty common, especially in Egypt, while uh, Israel was held captive, and even more so when Israel found its way into the land of Canaan. Um, creation stories were all over the place. And so now they're either in Egypt or in Canaan. They're residing around a bunch of people that do not worship the Lord God. They have their own view of how creation came about. They have their own view about how things are going to end. Not very dissimilar, once again, to our culture, right, that we're in. Um, and, you know, in fact, it would have been really easy for an Israelite to adopt a false creation story. Um, just as it's pretty easy for our culture to do that, um, it would have been pretty easy for uh, an Israelite to adopt a very false narrative of, of how all of this came together. And so, in fact, if you were to do some pretty intensive study on this, which I'm glad these guys have because I'm not super interested in it, but you might, um, we know a lot about uh, the creation stories that were circulating amidst this time. We can go back and look at extra-biblical sources and look and see what those creation stories uh, look like. But here's the point why I mention all that. Genesis, the author's argument, and I would, I would tend to agree, Gen the author of Genesis uh, purposely contradicts certain elements 
that were important to the false accounts. Here's one example. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, uh, we know that they're describing the sun and moon. God is describing the sun and moon, the creation of the sun and the creation of the moon. But listen to what it says. The, the text refers to the sun not by its normal Hebrew name, uh, but instead it uses a Hebrew word that stands for the greater light, um, which God made for day. Similarly, it also says for the moon, the lesser light. And this may seem a little weird, like if you were reading in the Hebrew, because I'm sure all of you can read ancient <laughs> biblical Hebrew, um, you might be like, oh, wait a minute, that's not the word for sun, you know, that's not the word for moon. Here's, here's the point. Um, what, what two things were often worshipped as gods, can you guess, in the ancient world? Bingo, I love it. All right, we're listening, we're awake, I love it, I love it. Yeah, so, of course, they're, they're, they're oftentimes seen as divinity, worshipped, um, they're gods, some type of god. Um, the, the point of Genesis, and we'll see this over and over and over again as we lay out the creation story and God establishing his kingdom. The point is not the created things. The point is what? Hmm? Point to the creator. creator. Bingo. The point is the creator. So there is an example that the author has used, specifically used, contradicting words so that whoever's reading this in the ancient Near East reads it and says, that's different. That's not the sun god that I've been worshiping. That's not the moon god that our people rallies around. This is a different god. This different god has created a greater light and a lesser light to have day. You know? but, but the greater light and the lesser light is not the point. The, the point is the one that created it. The attention is all on the one who created these things and not the things themselves. Um, I love this quote, so I'll just read it. The attention is thus all on the one who has created this marvelous light, the one whose power is so great that he can merely say a word and an entire universe spring into being. No mere light in the heavens deserves to be bowed down to. God alone is divine. He alone is to be worshipped. Though the whole creation is very good, Genesis 1.31, it is so because the one who has created it is infinitely superior to anything he has made. And then furthermore, the, 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 one of the greater points is the, 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 this God that we're talking about is nothing like the capricious God of Babylon. This capricious God that, that creates humankind to serve and to keep them happy and to keep them uh, enjoying things. That, that's not at all what this God is like. This God is much different. And we'll begin to see this stark contrast and so, um, you know, Israel begins to see, starting with the fact that, oh, Exodus, this same God that created all things is the same God that redeemed us. And this God's different. He's different than anything that we've seen before. Um, so instead, the God creates the world and sets men and women within, its, within it as the, and I love this language, he says, the crowning touch. Humanity's the climax of creation. We'll spend a, little, a few minutes on that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, the author paints this imagery of creation being this marvelous home prepared for humankind where they may thrive and live and enjoy the intimate presence and companionship of the creator himself. And so it's always about the creator. It's always about the creator. Even Romans, when you get to Romans, it says, right, they worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And uh, I would say if you were to begin to take stock in your life, in areas where things may be a little out of order, um, 
pretty confident you would see that you were not worshiping the Creator in that moment, but something of the created order. It's a little bit of out-of-order out uh, purpose. So, all right, what kind of literature is Genesis 1? This is third section. Um, although Genesis is polemic or argumentative, we absolutely know that, um, it also aims to teach us something uh, positively about uh, our faith and what it means for, for us to think about how God has made the world. Um, so w- what kind of literature is it? Um, some would say like priestly doctrine. Uh, some would say um, wisdom literature. It's certainly rich in meaning. But I really like the point that these guys pull out. And simply put, um, it, it's important this, to see that the story was carefully put together. So Genesis 1 and 2, despite whether we would love for it to have been written for this purpose, was not written to um, basically solve all of our 21st century modern day questions about how God and why and all of these things. We can, there's no, nothing wrong with sitting around pondering these things and talking about them and enjoying them and praying through them. But that's not why Genesis 1 and 2 was, was written. Um, in, in fact, it was carefully uh, put, put together in such a way so that we focus on a story that is structured. And we need to pay, I guess the way he would say it, just as much as we need to pay attention to the details, we need to pay just as much attention to the way it's laid, laid out and put together. So the layout of the story clearly shows that God is the divine source of all that is. He stands apart from all things in the special relationship of creator to creation The fashioning of humankind by God was intended to be the high point of all of his work of making and forming. And God had in mind a very special relationship between himself and humanity. So we we aren't told everything that's going to solve our curiosity concerning the how. um, But instead, we are given this story so that we might have true understanding of the world in which we live. So that we might have true understanding of not just the world we live in, but the divine creator that created it. And then where we, where we exist in it, our own place. And if we, don't, if we don't understand the world that God has created and the fact that he's the divine creator of it and then our place in that, we're lost. And I can, I, in that very sentence that I just gave you, I can pretty much describe the two or three personal relationships that I'm pursuing in my life, and that's where they find themselves. They are desperately trying to find, what am I doing here? What's the point of all this? They're, they're pursuing certain things that aren't going to fulfill. And, and the bigger reason is because they don't understand the grander story. Further, they don't understand the one that created the story. And because of those two facts, they can't understand their place in the story. And so that's, what, that's how we're going to choose to look at, at Genesis. Um, and, and that's uh, a really, really, really important piece because I think in the pagan religious world of Genesis 1 that was very dominant, um, you know, there were a lot of truths being proclaimed that were false, and Genesis comes in stark opposition and proclaims clearly the truth about God, the truth about humanity, and the truth about the world. That's it. I mean, you, you pretty much have it all wrapped up, and, and you can literally see how everything was fulfilled in Christ and will be fully fulfilled when he returns, but it all begins right here. It all begins right in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Um, Let's see. Uh, the God who brings all things into being. Um, let me stop here. We've got, we're almost halfway through. Any questions, any thoughts? I know I'm zipping through this fast, um, but we're, we're kind of um, moving quickly. Any thoughts? Any questions? Any comments?
I didn't drop my phone. I dropped my water. Well, well, I left it unscrewed so it didn't like make that squeaking noise and distract you guys. Uh, but then I stood it on my shoe. So did they, did they mention anything about like the two different like creation stories between chapter one and two and why they were specifically? They did. They so they mentioned that in this chapter actually. I didn't go into that because his whole point was that's not the point of this yeah. book or this work. And um, you know, basically his point was. And he didn't comment on where he landed or where they landed, but um, where you land there is not uh, fundamentally important to understanding the overarching structure of Genesis. So, um, yeah, they. But he did. He did mention it in a sentence, basically. In a sentence of his book, basically. I think there's two. There's kind of two elements, right? Genesis one, to kind of refer to what he's talking about. Genesis one kind of gives you the the thirty thousand foot level, yeah. Yeah. all all the days of creation. Genesis two drops you in. Uh, at the Lord's creating of Adam and Eve. Um, and Genesis 1 is a little bit more elevated, poetic in nature. Genesis 2 is a little bit more narratival, prose in nature. Um, and so I think I think the best way to see Genesis 1 and 2, some see Genesis 1 as, as poetic, being true and meaningful, but not a scientific you know, document, which I think no matter what you think about, creation. Genesis isn't a scientific document. That's not what it's trying to prove. Yet it has rich truth for us about those questions as it relates to science. First of all, God created so like that everything came from nothing is ruled out because everything came from someone you know, but the the particulars of how God created are laid out here in a specific order. I think you have kind of an elevated prose throughout with a a broad lens, uh, if you will, on God's creative act and a a narrow focus yeah. in Genesis 2, Genesis 1, broad lens, a narrow lens in Genesis 2 of God's creation of, of Adam and Eve. And, um, and so... Yeah, that's actually my, my mistake. I um, I misunderstood your question, I think. I, I thought you were referencing more uh, old earth, new earth, or uh, even the idea of theistic evolution. He does mention, and, and he only does one paragraph, but he, he says that, in fact, uh, it's on page uh, 32 and 33, um, that, that a lot of modern scholars often refer to two creation stories, chapter one and chapter two. Um, his argument would say that that's oftentimes not super helpful. Um, the way he would articulate it, the two passages use different images and metaphors because they are bringing into focus different aspects of the creation story, basically. So I think that's a helpful comment, but I don't know. He didn't deal with it in depth, um, at least not probably for if you wanted to talk about that where you would want. That's yeah. a very final question. So like a lot of scholars don't see Genesis 1, Genesis 2 as continuous. No, they they just refer to it. I mean, there are some scholars that, you know, that are not going to be orthodox that would say that. But an orthodox scholar would see them as continuous, but they would articulate them as two different creation stories in order to help make a distinct contrast, I think. I don't know if you know of any others that would look at it differently than that. I, I don't. Yeah, from a confessional, like, it's not that they don't see them continuous, it's that they see them being different in nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, um, it's basically, I, I think the pressure that is happen, that happens with critical scholarship is, it's hard, it's hard to make sense of the days of creation and what we think we know of evolution and science. Yeah. And so, I think what happens a lot of times is, is this trying to wrestle with what the Bible says and try to make sense of what 
what the the field of science tells us, you know, and science and faith aren't contradictory. Science scientists weren't there in the beginning, so they don't have the answer, you know, to, to what happened in the beginning either. Uh, all beginning statements are circular in nature, you know, that we have to come back to some source in which we trust that tells us what happened in the beginning. And so God's word is our uh, our fundamental uh, authority and source for truth. Um, and and I think we have to. We have to read the Bible faithfully for what it is, um, and then put the questions that the Bible asks to the to the to the studies that we have in the world, um, and not try to square the Bible with the world, but try to square the world with with the Bible as our as our fundamental starting point. And so, um, more than this, at the what we try to do in the Genesis sermon series is lay out when we walk through Genesis one, what are the fundamental truths that I think we should believe based on Genesis. Yeah. And where can we leave? You know, I've, I've had conversations with people who said, I can't hear the gospel because I don't believe God could have created everything, you know, in the beginning. And so, so I want to say, I think that's fundamentally, you have to get to that point. Like, I don't think you can deny that God is the creator and be a Christian. Right. Um, but I say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about the resurrection first, you know. Um, and and if, if Jesus got up out of the grave, then I don't have so much of a problem with God speaking and creating all things out of nothing, right? You know, uh, and so you know you, the way you start with someone. Like I don't want to front load this topic as like I've got to convince you of a seven literal seven day creation in order for you to hear the gospel. You know, I, I just want to say, okay, you probably you take whatever wherever you're at on that topic, and let's say there is a God. What better explains the world that we live in an impersonal by chance beginning or a personal intentional beginning you know and and then from there you can kind of go back and talk to people about this but I think the number one issue people have with Genesis is how do we square it with, with I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head like in, in fact that's why I like how these guys write this because their whole point is look we're we're not getting into that we can just as I said earlier like we can talk about these things it's helpful to talk about them and ask questions but at the end of the day if we miss the fact that the whole point of Genesis 1 is God himself and then him establishing his creation and his creative order and his kingdom on earth. Um, we've, we've missed it, you know. And, and just as the Israelites were tempted to, like, as they were in Egypt or Canaan, and, like, they were probably tempted, in, in fact, they call it syncretism, you know, to, like, sync, you know, to try to sync up what they knew of the sun god or the moon god with, oh, a little bit, let's sprinkle a little bit of Yahweh in there. And, like, we're, we're all like probably tempted to do that even in more practical ways in our own life, especially when we're in higher education and evolution is almost taught as if it's, oh, of course that's the truth. What are you talking about? You know, and then there's no distinction made between micro and macro and there's no conversation around a creative order and everything's by chance. And so that actually is a great segue um, because he gets into this topic of the God who brings all things. And this is where, as I studied through this this week, this is where like I was like, not that the other things we've talked about haven't been important because they absolutely are, but this is where like my my faith was rocked a little bit this week in a great way. It was like reinvigorated as I read through these the latter part of this chapter. I was just like overcome by the majesty of God, like his 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 amazing power, his overwhelming omniscience, like and ability to speak into existence. And so he gives this really cool illustration. He says, think of visiting a great art exhibit. Maybe you're a big art buff. 
um, of some sort. Maybe you're not, I don't know, but you can still appreciate it. And perhaps you're sitting there quietly overwhelmed in this art exhibit by what he would say the beauty and the power and the mag magnificent of the paintings. And then someone approaches you and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, Sierra, would you like to meet the artist? Like, that'd be pretty cool. And so Genesis is kind of letting us do that. Like, that's, that would be his illustrative way and imagery of way of saying, that's what Genesis is doing. Meet, meet the God who created all things. This is the point of it all right here. This is who matters. This is who's going to save you. This is who's going to keep you eternally. And this is the God who created everything that you know. And so Genesis introduces us to the artist of all things. In fact, he lays out this, this concept of the first three words in the Hebrew Bible. I think I may have put it on your notes. Um, in the beginning, created God, who is the acting subject, right? Uh, it's not in English order. Sorry for you English buffs. Um, but those three words, in short, those three words, we are literally transported back all the way to the origin of everything. In, in the first three words. Um, in fact, he uses this, this quote that says, to the mysterious personal source of all that is, the eternal, uncreated God. He has no beginning. He has no end. He merely speaks a word of command to bring everything that exists. Like, that's the power of God. That's the God that we trust and know and love. Um, the idea of creation preserves the most radical distinction between creator and creature in every sense of the word. Creation is not, I love it, Creation is not an emanation of God or some like natural overflow of God. Creation is a personal product of God's will. Like he personally willed to speak creation into existence by the work of his hand. And so we are introduced in Genesis 1 uh, to God as the infinite, eternal, uncreated one uh, who by his creative actions brings everything into existence. Colossians 1 brought everything into existence, and sustains all things. The whole world belongs to God. The little song we teach our kids, he's got the whole world in his hands. Literally, because they came from his mouth, right? Um, and so Revelation 4, 11, John says, You are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And so if you look at that, that interaction, that's literally from the throne room of God, which is appropriate because it echoes the truth about God implied all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to chapter 1 and 2. So, um, a unique concept that we should probably think through, as I said earlier, being familiar with your audience. Um, the ancient world would have been very familiar with authority. Um, tribal and or national leaders would have basically have been seen as absolute. And so even the lightest word of a mortal king would be considered a command. Um, and, you know, they would have understood that light word as a command for everyone, right? Um, and so here, when they read Genesis, this immortal king, what does he do to create everything? He speaks. They would have seen his speaking, his divine speech, as a command to, to, for creation to spring into existence. And, and this would have been very significant to an ancient people. They would have seen uh, an incredible amount of authority, an incredible amount of um, divine nature, an incredible amount of otherness, if you will. Um, and then what does God do? After he creates, he begins to give all creation what? Names. 
He starts naming them. So he's exercising his sovereign right. So as the people are reading this, they're like, wow, he's speaking everything into existence. Now he's naming them. He creates all things and names all things because he's Lord of all creation. And we, we know this because we, we're New Testament believers, but think of it. When, when they're reading this in the Old Testament day, this would have been a very, very stark and important concept to think about. Um, Walton Matthews and Shabbos say uh, in one of their commentaries, just as God is the one who sets time in motion and set up the climate, he is likewise responsible for setting up all the other aspects of human existence. I love this concept. He says the availability of water and the ability of land to grow vegetation and the laws of agriculture and the seasonal cycles, each of God's creatures and the created role that they each play. All of this was ordered by God and was good and it was not tyrannical and it was not threatening. So it's totally different than any type of God they had seen. It was totally authoritative. It was totally divine. And this God was putting himself on the hook for everything to work correctly. And I mean, it's whether they believed it or not, it was very clear that this God was different, if that makes sense. Um, His creation is good, and it merely highlights the incomprehensible goodness, wisdom, and justice of the Creator Himself. Um, God, I I think up on your notes, God does not withhold Himself from creation and keep Himself distant. I'll zip through this quickly, so just listen, and then we can kind of reference back to it. But Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The author says that the Spirit of God is even, even then very close ready to care and nurture humanity. Like, In fact, I think he says like a mother bird or something like that. That sounded a little too weird for me to say to you, but anyways, the author said it. So um, Genesis 1.26, he expresses personal involvement in making the cosmos, right? Let us. There is a personhood communicated when he says that. There's personal involvement when it comes to creating the cosmos. Genesis 1.28, God speaks directly to his creation. What does he tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. There's a personal relationship between this divine God and his creation. He's not separated from them. Genesis 3.8, this was my favorite. Amy, Amy, as as, as Amy and I laid down last night before we went to bed, we were praying and she was worried about some things, and I referenced back to Genesis 3.8. We'll touch on this a little more in depth, but this God like, walked in the garden in the cool of the afternoon and met Adam and Eve, like met them, walked with them, talked with them, cared for them, knew them, wanted to know them. That's the God we serve. Like That's what Genesis is pointing us to. He's so other, yet he's so personal. And that's the diff, that, that this is one of the biggest distinctions between the God of the Scriptures and any other God that's ever been described. This holy otherness, yet this incredible intimacy with His creation. Um, and so when we know that God is intimate and personal and has concerns for us, or for them and their concerns and needs, we absolutely can trust He does the same for us. The, the next section, he says, humankind is God's image. Um, I want to shift gears here to highlight um, God's creation a little more. So in the Bible, man and woman are creatures designed and made by God as a part of his world. If we're to be faithful, here's the deal. I mean, I'll just kind of lay it out there. I don't think there's going to be any argument. But if we are to be faithful to what the Bible has to say about who we are, we cannot think that humanity was any sort of random product of time and chance. And Michael kind of referenced this a minute ago. It absolutely was not. In fact, that to me seems like it's a more difficult um, outcome to get to when you begin to really think about what we see in the creative order and how things work together. 
Um, in fact, uh, I remember when Amy was still practicing as a TBI nurse, we would often find that um, more renowned um, uh, order in regards to how long they had been in the practice of brain science um, were more often at least uh, they believed in some kind type of theistic something. They believed in some kind of God of some sort because they would oftentimes walk away from everything they knew scientifically and they could not explain how the brain did or did not repair itself. And, and, and so it, it, it put them, if they were honest with themselves and could get over their pride, in a place of, I don't understand that. I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. And, and um, some of the coolest doctors we ever met were, had been practicing for 30 years and were solid believers because they were pushed to that place of, um, I, don't, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense. This can't just be evolutional. Like, there's something more here. Um, so... Uh, we are unique among the creatures. Humankind is personal, just like God. We're unique, and we enjoy a unique personal relationship with God. So different than animals. Sorry, I know you love your cats here. Um, just kidding. Um, but I, I love my dog. He keeps my feet warm all week at my desk. Um, he's a good dog, but he's different. He's not made in God's image, and the scriptures lay that out. Um, Augustine says this in his Confessions: We are made for God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. We are made like that. God purposely set us apart like that. Um, just as we mentioned the habit of God walking in the garden and meeting with man and woman, Gordon Wenham reminds us that this portrays the garden almost like the view of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. God living amidst His people. And you see that. It's like God desires that. Isn't that crazy? Like. He's living amidst his people in Garden of Eden, and then they blow it, and they're, they're booted out. And then he's living amidst his people in the tabernacle, and they continue to blow it, and he keeps bailing them out. And then he's living amidst his people physically as he comes to earth in the New Testament. And then furthermore, he's living amidst his people in our hearts with the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead, and one day he himself will live amidst his people again. Like every season of the drama of Scripture, we see God desiring to live amidst his people. Like it's an amazing, and that's why I go back to the foundational principle. The more you understand the overarching storyline of Scripture, the more beautiful and the better understanding you have of, of who God is. It, it's an amazing thing. Um, so in Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight, we see mankind made in God's image, in His likeness. Um, though God is the infinite Creator, and humanity is His finite creation. The authors say there's something fundamentally similar between us and God. Now, side note, and I'll hammer this home. Although image is the word used as a metaphor to draw our attention to the striking similarity between humans and God, we won't for a moment deny that we are radically different from God. It's this creator versus creation. So the fundamental similarity between us and God, what is it? Genesis 1, 26-28. Very simply put, we have a unique vocation or a unique calling or a unique commissioning by God himself. What is it? Under God, humanity is to rule over the non-human parts of creation, much like God is ruling over all things. So just like we are in the image of Christ in many ways, we are or the image of God, we are called to rule over all non-human parts of this creation. He uses words like under kings or vice kings, or stewards. I like the word stewards. We see stewardship in Colossians. Um, we are to rule over the creation so that God's, I love this, so that God's reputation is enhanced within the cosmic kingdom. 
We are to rule over creation so that God's reputation is enhanced within his cosmic kingdom. Now, this forces us to deal with the abuse of it. We talked a little bit about this in a couple, I think, ser- uh, parts of our Genesis series. Um, but a lot of people over the years have used this passage of Scripture to abuse the exploitation of creation and the exploitation of others to um, rule, if you will. Um, that's always been interesting to me. I'm not really sure how people get there unless they just know they're being sinful and they're doing it anyways, um, which I suspect that was mostly the case. But it's weird to me because it's totally irrational. If you look at God and his creative work, he calls it good, right? And then he always does what's best for his creation. So if we're called to rule in the image of Christ, then we're always called to do what's good for the creation. Like there is no justification about doing what's not good for our fellow neighbor or what's not good for the for the world. And, you know, this calls us to some, some type of creation care. I mean, it absolutely does. There's, there's no way not to see some type of some responsibility over creation when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Um, so if we're to embody the calling to care for God's creation as he would, we must see that we are human caretakers and we are accountable to the divine creator for the world he has entrusted to our care. We're accountable to him. And he's calling us to take care of it. Psalm 8, 6, the glory of human beings is that God has made them rulers over the works of his hands. We have huge freedom and huge responsibility to to respond to God's call in stewardship. And we will be held accountable to that purpose. Um, I I love the, he gives a bunch of good illustrations throughout this book. But he says, imagine if you were a 15th century sculptor and one day you received a message from Michelangelo. Um, asking if you would come to his studio and complete a piece of work he has begun. You'd probably be pretty excited, if I had to guess. And maybe a little nervous, and, you know, whatever. Um, and you probably wouldn't sleep a lot. And then uh, the last thing Michelangelo mentions to you is that you are expected to continue his work in such a way that his own reputation will be on the line. How would you operate in that setting? I can probably guess how you might at a much greater, more cosmic, more divine, more eternal scenario, that is how we are called to be image bearers in relation to God's creation. Yeah, what you got? So that, that language, it was like, he's representing reputations online and how to divine people. Like, who else is going to be judging him besides himself? That's a question. You mean, who's? Like, yeah, you said we're helping him carry, but we're like, obviously, like, in a context before, like, on this side of eternity, we are like stewards of everything. Like we're stewards of our reputation to some degree. Right? Yeah, yeah. But in that like post period, like that from the other side of eternity. Who's gonna be? Like why like his reputation, like who is judging him besides himself? Does it make sense? So like that's the question I have. I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean the shorter answer is no one. He's a he's the just judge. I mean he's he is the perfection of justice. So if he were to be God, it would be impossible for him to be unjust. Therefore, you know, if, if I guess another way to say it would be if he needed a judge, then he wouldn't be God. You know, and we wouldn't want to follow him, you know what I mean, if he had the capability to do that. Uh, does that make sense? I guess you're saying more so that we're representing him to the people. That's exactly right. To the people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's where I was trying to, maybe, because I was like, maybe, I, did, maybe I, I didn't clarify my point. My point is that we, we have a responsibility to represent him to God's 
other creation in how we care for the earth and how we interact with people and how we parent and how we do our job and our vocation, which he gets into in just a second. But um, does that make sense? Yeah. Good question. I actually don't know that I've ever thought of that. Any other thoughts or questions? <laughs> so he works through this creation care um, on an eternal scale we, we represent Christ um, there's a dynamic element to the image of God uh, in fact I'll just read his his, um, his quote he says indeed there's a dynamic element to the image of God God himself is revealed or imaged in his creation precisely as we are busy within creation developing its hidden potentials in agriculture, art, music, commerce, politics, scholarship, family, life, church, leisure, and so on, in any ways that honor God. And so here, here's kind of touches on a little bit of what we were talking about, Max. As we take God's creative commands of let there be and develop the potentials in them, we continue to, to spread the fragrance of his presence throughout the world he has made. So in all that we do, right, we're called to honor God. We're called to image him. Um, we're not tyrants exploiting others or exploiting the earth. We're humble stewards ruling before the presence of God. That's what we're here to do. I think a good um, uh, idea that's helpful when you think about stewardship, you know, obviously God, we're not supposed to exploit creation, yet God gave us creation to develop, you know, that, to, to cultivate and to, to spread out. And like basically we were to make the whole of creation like the garden. We were to develop, you know, creation and, and, and you see that as a good thing. Um, Francis Schaeffer and his book on uh, the pollution, uh, God and the Pollution of Man, I think is the name of the book. He talks about um, when it comes to where we get tripped up in creation care, it's haste and greed mm. is how we exploit creation. So when you do things hastily, um, just trying to not, not thinking, not caring about how you're doing it, but just speed is most important. And when you do things out of greed, uh, trying to, to squeeze something, like even you see it in the laws of uh, gleaning in the Old Testament. If in greed you keep all your crops and you make sure nothing goes to waste, you've got to get every penny out of it and you have no room to, to care for others or you leave no room to, you know, um, to, to help others or, or no even letting the land rest, like even common agricultural principle that says you, you don't plant the same crops in the same place all the time, that you leave room for the land to rest and and those type of things, like, but in greed, sometimes we're like, no, I got to do it all. It's all all about getting more and more. And I think that's a helpful. When I read that, I was convicted, like in my own life, like how haste and greed can be, you know, elements that corrupt. That's huge. Um, and so I think that's kind of helpful to maybe. No, that's huge. I mean, honestly, yeah, that that flows in because we're we're just about done. I know we're a couple minutes after, so if you'll give me like three more minutes, because um, we'll close it down. He, he, he lays into this idea of that we don't just interact with God through our stewardship of his creation, but there's also this relational aspect, which plays into exactly what you're saying. And so basically his concept is we, we're not just created to have a relationship with creation, but we're created for a deep relationship with God himself. Um, and then the nature of our relationship is often expressed um, as... as you know, we interact with others. In fact, he says um, it's almost impossible for us to be fully human without relating to other people. And notice I haven't gotten a marriage yet because not everybody gets married. And so what we're not going to say is that it's impossible to be fully human or fully carry out God's, you know, 
uh, plan for you if you're not married. Like, God created you to have a relationship with himself, and then even if you don't get married, you still have some very important relationships around you that God has created you for, and that makes you human. And so um, he, he does make male and female. There is absolutely a gender distinction built into creation. Bless you. We're always made man and woman. And, and one thing he lays out here I think that's really helpful is that we always stand in relationship with one another. Man and woman always stand in relationship with one another. We have a responsibility to care for one another under God. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to Genesis 2, he focuses on these relationships in our lives. So, so even before you get to this one flesh concept, he lays out this idea that Eve is provided as a helpmate and a companion, right? Not just there to serve Adam, but guess what? Adam is also to be a companion to Eve, right? And God knows that that's what best that's what's best for his creation. He creates that so they've got this this God who's intimately involved with his creation, giving him the relationships that they need, you know, for everything that he's asking them to do. And then Adam has a relationship with the animals because he names them, so he's over them. And then at the deepest level of companionship, we see marriage because they become one flesh. But at the end of the day, they are called, they, Adam and Eve, even outside of marriage, we are called to rule over and to be fruitful and multiply in creation for his glory. In everything we do, the way we cultivate, the way we work, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we drive, the way we spend our money, the way we are generous, the way we, all of it is to be done under, as, as those that relate to God and relate to one another, under the submission of Christ. And God lays it out that way. And what's interesting to me is when you start seeing this like blurring of gender distinction, it like it doesn't just cause issues practically, but it like removes a part of the beautiful way God has designed us to interact with one another, which honestly detracts from who God is. And, and there's just a much more fundamental piece there. Um, he finishes with the world is God's kingdom. I'm just going to read you this quote, and then we're going to pray and be done because there is no way to say it any better than he did. So if you give me 30 seconds, then we'll pray and be done. He says, throughout Christianity, uh, though Christianity has often been accused of being otherworldly, it should be clear by now that the beginning of the biblical story does not encourage anyone to feel detached from or somehow superior to this world of space and time and matter. The Bible depicts this created material world as the very theater of God's glory, the kingdom over which he reigns. Though it is created, and therefore must never be put on the same level as the uncreated God, it is always described as good. Through Genesis 1, the repetition of the word good is a reminder that the whole creation comes from God, and that in it, its initial state is beautifully reflecting his own design and plan for it. It has great diversity in light, darkness, land and sea, rivers and minerals, plants, animals, birds, and fish, human beings, both male and female. This bounty is part of God's intention, suggesting a marvelous harmony of created things like an orchestra. It produces a symphony of praise to the creator. There is order to this diversity. God's creative word gives it structure. And so it, it's really cool because you'll begin to see next week, right, um, Adam and Eve's royal stewardship is to be the small version of what God intends to happen to the whole creation um, as history unfolds. And next week we'll begin to see that the same God who created all things will ultimately be the one that will redeem and return creation back to its 
initial order in which it was designed. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll be done. Gracious God, thank you for today. Thank you for our study, Lord. Uh, I know it can get quite in-depth, and it's a lot, but Lord, I pray that it would be uh, encouraging to us, and it would be honoring to you, and Lord, that we would learn more of who you are so that we may look more like you and represent you to the world. We love you in Christ's name.